giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with my buddy Derek. Hey, Derek. Hello. You're remote today. Yeah, I'm remote. Or more I'm, remote uh, than usual. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm in um, beautiful, sunny uh, Los Angeles right now mm-hmm. for a family thing. So Cool. Yeah. How, how's the weather there? You look like you're in a t-shirt. I am in a t-shirt. I was. We were walk, walked around a few miles yesterday. It's like 70 degrees, perfect. So, mm. Well, it's going to be 40 and rainy here, so I bet you're jealous. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'll go first this week. I got some stuff. Yeah, let's do it. So in Formkeep land, we have uh, two things that are imminently shippable that I'm okay. um, excited about. One is people ask us from time to time about redirecting somewhere specific based on the responses that someone makes in a form. Hmm. Like it's an enterprise client or it's a whatever person. Like based on some drop down, usually they want to send them to like a different thank you page or a different like follow up thing. Yep, uh, and we haven't had a way to support that, but I just added uh, the ability to pass in like an underscore redirect URL parameter that we will hide from your submission data, but it will we can, you can use that to trigger a redirect anywhere you want to go. Nice. And so if you are the savvy type and can do just like a little bit of JavaScript to send in that variable, then you can go uh, wherever you want. And it's one of those features that like didn't get it didn't get asked for a lot, honestly, but. Every time someone asked for it, I was like, "We should. You should be able to control that programmatically. There should be some way to do that. Because right. right now, you can you can specify one URL per endpoint, but there was no way to override it dynamically. And so, right now, there is. So, what I'm actually curious because this is kind of in line with what I've been thinking about in terms of my microcom talk transforming, you know, uh, what people are asking for into an actual feature. Right. Yep, yep. So you said you got multiple requests. Were they basically for the same exact thing, or how did you distill that down? Yeah, it was. It was usually pretty uniform. Okay. Yeah. And the question was basically what I said, like, can I send someone somewhere different based on their responses? Right. A way to accomplish that kind of occurred to me. And I'll admit I didn't go to the next level, which is follow up at them and say, like, do you know any JavaScript? Like, if I gave you a way to populate this field, would that work for you? Yeah. Um, So this technically enables people to get it done. But I'll admit I don't know for sure if the people that are asking for this are savvy enough to actually be able to use it. Yeah. I could see this one of two ways. Like, either doing what you did, building it in the JavaScript or having like adding to the UI and saying like, you know, adding some way to, to specify conditional logic. Ooh, and yeah. <laughs> it, basically like an automation rule. Yeah. Yep, <laughs> this, yep. this reminds me a lot of like early days of drip hearing little requests like this, but there was like, you know, tens or hundreds of them of like, I want to be able to do this automatically when this happens or based on this condition. Mm-hmm. And that's like, was ultimately the birth of the entire automation system. <laughs> right. And arguably, it seems like the birth of Drip's really coming into its own. Oh, yeah, for sure. So that's yeah. that's interesting. I'm, I'm actually curious about your thoughts on that because there's an interesting tipping point where it's like sometimes you can solve these things with small efforts like that. And then every yeah. so often you say, you know what, let's build an automation system. Right. Do you have a framework for that? Are you thinking of a framework for that? Yeah, I mean, I think the... I mean, one of the steps of the framework that I'm working out for my talk is like... The very first step ultimately is gathering feature requests from customers or potential customers mm-hmm. and looking for commonalities and patterns. Um, but the first step is like trying to boil it down to the actual problem they're trying to solve. So if someone were to, if someone were to write it and say, I want to, I want UI in there where I can specify this condition and right. it could look like this. And here's a, here's a mock up of what I think it should look like. And then you're like, all right hold on a second, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. let's distill that down to what's the actual problem you're trying to solve. And that problem is obviously just, they want to 
redirect to a different location based on some logic, right? So yeah, I mean, specifically for the automation case, we were getting many, many different things like moving from one campaign to another or doing something based on someone visiting a page on your website. Yeah. And we were like, nope, nope, nope. Like this is too complicated mm. all along. But then we realized like, this is all just general automation. And if we built this into a system where there's any series of triggers and any series of actions that you can take, and they're actually already things that the application is doing, it's just not exposed in a in an interface where someone can programmatically create these rules, then we could solve all these problems with one system. Now, obviously, mm. it's a really complex system, but um, yeah. so it's kind of like gathering up inputs, trying to get to the root of the problem, and then trying to see if there's a solution that generalizes well. Mm-hmm. And the trade-off, the flip side of that is always is complexity. Yeah. Like every everything you add is effectively, it's an asset and a liability. Right. Uh, and I, I sometimes struggle with figuring out how to account for that or how to balance that in my head, like when it's when it's going to be worth it. Yeah. So another form keep example. So we, we have a thing where it's like, oh, we can send it, we can generate an email, a response when someone submits your form to like, hey, we got your thing. Thanks for submitting the whatever. And you can yep. control that. That's like a, mark, a big markdown field. So you can put whatever you want in there. And yep. sometimes people will say, hey, can I interpolate values that people entered in the form? Mm-hmm. And it's like, sounds easy. Uh, that's actually a lot of complexity to add that sort of thing. But maybe it's worth it. You know, it's like, it's yet another reason that maybe someone would reach for a different tool. And so it's like, right. well, maybe we should allow people to do that. But eventually, if you just sort of keep following that framework of maybe we should allow that, then it's like you could end up with this jumbled mess eventually. Yep. I mean, I think that is actually step three of the framework, which is there's a few questions that we find ourselves always asking each other. One is, is building this feature going to help me get new customers? Mm. Or two, is it going to help me retain existing customers? So it's like, is it going to help with growth or retention or both? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is neither, like if this is a one-off request and it's going to make one person happy, but it's not really going to move the needle at all. How do you, then... Are you just using intuition for those for the answers to those, though? It's I see. I think that's where knowledge of the market and mm. having a vision for the product are kind of the intangibles that make that all work. Yeah. If you had no knowledge about your specific market or you know understanding what your customers need, then maybe you would turn to like a survey or something and be like, let's survey the mm. user base and find out if they're about to cancel because of this. Or you know, let's do a market research thing where we try to figure out like would more people sign up. But I think that's cumbersome and and it's like not feasible to do yep. in all cases. So that's where you have to fill in the gaps with intuition and. And your own vision. wisdom. Yep. That's interesting. There are some things in programming, I'll, I'll tell people, like I'm talking to a newer programmer, let's say, and there are a lot of things in programming, like common pieces of advice or wisdom that as you dig into them, some of them conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, or basically everything kind of has its pros and cons uh, yep. for every technique. And one of the things I like to say is, and that's why we get paid the big bucks, is yep. because this is not an easy decision. It, it's not cut and dried. And so... You know, you kind of got to just deal with that uncertainty and work on it. Exactly. Like I, I've been saying like to myself through this, I, you know, I've been taking my machine learning class, right? And mm-hmm. I'm like, machines are going to be able to make all these decisions at some point, just like a human. But I think there's a certain element to this where it's like, you are not a machine learning algorithm. When you're building product, if you're just purely taking in inputs and trying to translate them into outputs without that little bit of like mm-hmm. special wisdom, knowledge of the market, vision, whatever you want to call it, then... Uh, it's going to take you down a road where, you know, product is too complex. Product is a maintenance burden. You have to think of all these additional factors, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Um, the other interesting thing about this to me is I'm realizing that the effort to document this and tell our customer support person about it and mm-hmm. write a blog post about it and all that is going to take me about as long as the code. Yeah. If not more. 
I was talking to Laura Roeder about marketing people. And one of the things yep. she told me is that often you can get away with just hiring a writer because a lot of marketing is writing. And mm -hmm. I'm starting to feel that more and more where it's like, if mm -hmm. we had someone like semi-technical that could write just a blog post about this feature, for example, or the, and then and the other things we're shipping on FormKeep, that would be pretty damn helpful. Yeah. That's the part of it that's not super fun for people who like to build the stuff. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was like. so happy this week, like writing code and like, I was like, oh man, I need to refactor this. And like, I ripped a bunch of methods out of a controller and put it into like this beautiful new class. Yeah. And it was great. I can like, I collapsed this conditional down and it felt really, really good. And now it's like, okay, now I need to go write a doc on how to use this feature. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound that fun. Yeah, it's something we're not, we're still not even super great at it. Like we've, we kind of have this Slack channel where we notify, we let support people know when we ship things. Mm. And then we have someone who's kind of dedicated to spinning out KB articles when there's, you know, something complex enough that worthy of writing an article about. Yep. He kind of does customer success. He does strategy calls with customers. So he's, that's kind of the, the area that he's in. And then he's also writing KB docs, which is pretty cool. Yep. Do you have like a checklist or something for a new feature so that you know to do these things? Or does this, is this just kind of company lore? It's pretty informal, but there probably should be a checklist because I think it's basically a checklist that a lot of us are following already in our heads, but it's not codified, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's probably a worthy exercise at some point as we scale, you know? Yeah. I love to neglect those last parts. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like, the code's done. It's in production. All right. What's next? Right. We have like secret features. <laughs> Right. And that's that's not a good place to be. Like you've done the work, yeah. but if you don't tell anybody, like what what good is it? Yeah, we we typically like if it's a specific feature that someone has requested, we always try to like drop a note about that in the body of the issue. Like once this is complete, notify so and so. Uh-huh. And then so we're pretty good about with our process on doing that step. Mm-hmm. But if it's good for a handful of people and we determine it's worthy of building the product, then we should probably be trumpeting it a little bit more you know like right telling telling everybody so. yeah it's kind of like a nice freebie marketing opportunity exactly yeah and it makes you feel good as a customer like oh like their new stuff is happening they're all like there's there's, there's movement here improvements yep. coming down the pipe that's great yep yeah something to work on yeah. um so another thing um we got going on in form that are about to, like shipping imminently is we are going to run a test uh, of not requiring a credit card up front mm, okay. so we dug into this a little bit and the code changes were not that bad. So mm -hmm. we're doing it pretty quick and dirty. And and I guess it's a testament to the code quality, but it turned out this was not so hard. In my Good. head, I've, this was going to be a lot of technical complexity, but mm -hmm. it sort of has not been. And we, we, may, we may bump into edge cases as we go, but the PR was not so bad. And I think we're going to ship it today or early next week. Nice. But the thing we realized is like, we're converting to a paid trial from our landing page, I think point one percent of people Oof. yeah which <laughs> feels real low yeah the funnel right now is like landing page um okay give us email password and then credit card form and uh, i forget the exact numbers but like it's a decent number of people do the email password and they get to the credit card form and, ba and like it just like falls off a cliff mm -hmm. and so i put up a little feedback form for a while on that page which is like why don't you want to do this and people are like i want to try it i want to try it like 300 versions of i just want to try it out before i do it yeah. And so we're going to run a test and see how it goes. Nice. I think that's worth. Are you going to do it as like a true A-B test where part of the people see a form, part of the people don't? Or are you just kind of nope. flipping it over? Yeah. For yeah. simplicity, we're just going to do it do it all at once. Yeah. We have a, a good amount of historical data on what our conversion is, and we're going to not do anything too crazy to try to affect it. Uh, right. And it's not a perfect, it's not science anymore, but yep. it, it'll, it's still data. Yep. For yeah. sure. 
like a lot of developers are using form cube specifically, right? Yeah. It's like people with static sites. Yep. I never actually tested when I had code tree. I never actually tested requiring credit card up front because I just kind of assumed that like this was not going to go over well, even mm-hmm. though it's something that we've always done. I mean, Rob has, I think, done it for the, his last few products. Drip has always had credit card required up front. Yep. But I think for something that's of that level of simplicity, like it's not a marketing automation suite. It's a relatively basic tool. Yep. I think it could be a good thing. And I think developers especially are particularly averse to putting credit cards in. I agree. Yep. I agree with that. And also the simplicity and speed with which you can get started is definitely um, a positive. Yeah. Like it's an advantage that we have. Like if, if you have time for process and wait and all that, then you could spin up your own whatever. Right. To accept the submissions. And so it feels like it's sort of in keeping with the idea of FormKeep is that like you're going to get this done in like the next 20 minutes. Um, and so putting up a, a roadblock in the way feels a little bit antithetical to that. Yeah, it could be interesting even to like go the route of see how fast you can get someone from the point they visit the website to being able to have a working form endpoint. Like, uh-huh. I remember Stripe in the early days, you like visited the website and it was like, I want to start accepting credit cards now. And you like clicked one button and they're like, all right, here's your token. Here's your thing. Put this in. <laughs> you know, it was like. It was like crazy fast. I remember I, I don't think I even had to put in username and password um, wow. to like start using a sandbox account. And then you could like convert that sandbox into your real account with like very minimal effort. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it felt odd because it's like I'm collecting payment stuff. I feel like I should be going through mountains of forms and compliance and, mm-hmm. you know, verifying right. my social security number and all this stuff. Right. Because I'm taking money from people. But they did an impressive job with their speed to set up. Yeah, that, w- that would be an interesting like onboarding North Star metric. Mm-hmm. to watch over time is like how how low could you get that number right if you if you really obsessed about it yeah well, i think it'll be a good test to, to lower barriers a little bit more without that credit card form yeah well I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes and now i'd like to take a moment to tell you about the sponsor for this week's show which is fresh books you know when you talk about fresh water you talk about not salty if you're feeling salty because your clients are not paying you because you send them an invoice and they're like, oh yeah, I haven't looked at that yet. And you're like, have they looked at it? Are they telling me the truth? You start to feel a little salty towards them. Just a little bit. And you're like, man, I wish I could solve this problem for myself. Well, FreshBooks has solved this problem because they'll tell you that information. They'll let you know if someone's seen it. They'll let you get paid over the internet. They'll let you get that money and you need that money. Because you don't want to be salty. You want to desalinate your client-freelancer relationships. By the way, when fresh refers to of the wind, I have have the definition of fresh open in front of me. And it applies to a bunch of different concepts. And when you talk about a fresh wind, it says cool and fairly strong. And that's how I think you're going to describe FreshBooks when you give them a try. Which you can do by going to freshbooks.com slash giantrobots and entering giantrobots. You get to type giant robots twice because it's your lucky day and you love robots, especially big ones. And you can enter giant robots in the how did you hear about us section. And uh, that'd be great. 30-day free trial. Check it out. Enjoy. And thanks to FreshBooks for sponsoring of this week's show. That was sort of the, the focus of the week, more or less. I do have a general question, but I'll, I'll also let you open up to what you are doing. I, don't, I would say not much has changed since, since last time. Um, still busy onboarding folks new a new rails engineer and new javascript engineer onto the team so mm-hmm. just lots of like lots of intro like walkthroughs of the app this week and um those are always fun to 
walk through page by page and explain kind of the history of how all the things came into drip and um, how they're all piecing together Mm -hmm. and cringing at like some little pieces of legacy that (laughs) that I see along the way. Mm -hmm. But it's always, it's always a fun exercise to do that. Do you have any, (laughs) do you have any automation around onboarding people? (laughs) You know, it's, it's starting to occur to me that like we could probably use more. I mean, even just like people's environment setups. I mean, a, a senior Rails developer who's been around the block a few times can usually get it set up pretty easily, but it still like takes a few hours for them and getting all the dependencies in place. So, I mean, something like like a Docker container or something containing okay. the app would be cool. Or like, I think GitHub uses it. Don't they have like a bunch of puppet scripts that they run on people's laptops and stuff to get their environment set up? Uh, I don't know, although we have one of those. Yeah. We have a, a laptop script. Do you find it, it's pretty effective? Saves time? Uh, I haven't actually tried it myself. Okay. I don't switch machines very often, and but I, people seem to be pretty into it. Yeah. I think it does what it says on the tin, which is basically gets you ready for Rails development. Yep. And we also do, we have like a setup script in all our repos as a pretty standard mm. thing now that mm-hmm. like gets you going, which is, is a huge win. I love that, by the way. Oh, yeah. Like oh, if, yeah. if your app doesn't have a bin setup script, it's it's so worth throwing in there. Just to get the, like, whenever you, t- and whenever you tell someone, like, oh, and make sure you blah, 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 like, just throw that in the script. Right. And then everyone has it, and it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. I'm not sure we have one right now. I think we have a readme that's a few manual commands you need to run to install different dependencies and stuff. But, yeah, we should probably script that. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's what scripts are good for. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. It's just simple stuff, like, we have, like, copy over the sample environment file, because we have, like, a right. bunch of environment variables. So copy that over, bundle stuff, set up the database, add some bin stubs throw in some development data, join mm-hmm. the Heroku apps, mm-hmm. add the Heroku remotes, just the kind of stuff that you can programmatize and right. not make people worry about. Yep, I like it. Well, so, so I asked about the automation because, so we have a couple uh, automated processes in place for new people. I think I have the details right on this, but we have like a, an actual like an email welcome campaign. Ah, oh, got it. Because yeah. there's a lot of stuff to know. And we found that like, if you give it to someone all at once, they kind of can't really process it. And so mm-hmm. there's actually, I don't know, I'm not sure how it's delivered, um, but there's like a, a multiple email thing you get over your first few days as an employee um, yeah. with links to stuff and details and things like that. And there's also a script that we run that adds them to a, a million things. Got it. So like gets them into Slack. It's and like, yeah, it's like provisioning yeah. basically, I guess. Yeah. It's, or yeah. it's not provisioning. Uh, yeah, but it's, it does what you expect. Add them to the GitHub team and add them, give them access to Trello and put them in Gmail and all these things. Yep. I like that. Fortunately, Leadpages has some internal resources, some some folks who are like kind of dedicated to doing those things for new hires, you know, and people mm-hmm. on the HR team or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think it's not something that I really realized when we were a small team and we were growing at like one person every six months or something. And it was usually like the first hire for that position. <laughs> so it was all new anyways. Yeah. It was not, not aware of that. But now we're getting to the point where like, all right, we're going to add another Rails developer and then a few months, another one. Mm-hmm. And wait, we're going to now repeat all these tasks over again, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And some of it has to be human contact, you know, making people feel welcomed and all those human to human things. But yeah, I think it could be interesting to automate some of the repetitive stuff. Totally. Yeah. And there's there's more than you think, like once you start mm-hmm. paying attention to it, or at least there was for me, like, because I onboarded um, our contractor developer recently, or sort of I've been continually onboarding him over several weeks because we keep forgetting about things that he doesn't have access to. Yeah. And there's just so many things. Like we use, I mean, we use a lot of tools and he needs access to a bunch of different places and it's, it's, it's kind of continuously a pain. Yeah. 
Actually, now that I think about it, the the engineer who just started, we need to get him into New Relic. We need to get him into Honey Badger. We need to get exactly. It's all the supporting, <laughs> yeah, all the supporting yeah. tools. Yeah, and like Intercom and Stripe and right, yeah, all that stuff. And then when we stop working together, it's going to be the reverse of that. Right. I'll just be right. finding references to his account all over for you know months, probably. Oh yep. yeah, we have to, oh yeah, and that. Oh yeah, and that. <laughs> so not much shaking with you. These days. Yeah, no. I guess the only other thing is um, my own project that I was, that I talked about a few episodes ago. The um, reworking, refactoring our integration system mm-hmm. is rounding the corner on that. Like we're getting really close to shipping that, and yeah, I'm super stoked for it. It's I, I end up using kind of an interesting way to go about migrating the data. So basically, we have the concept of rule triggers, things that trigger automations, and they're sprinkled throughout a few different places. Okay. So like on a form, you can put rule triggers there on a, we have things called basic rules, which is our first type of automation rules we allowed, which is similar to Zapier. We have a trigger on one side and an action on the other side. Mm -hmm. And then we have obviously workflows that have triggers within them. So a few different contexts where triggers are stored. And like in the case of workflows, they're stored in this big old JSON blob that kind of specifies the entire workflow. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, forms have their own table with actions on them. And we have basic rule action. So it's kind of sprinkled throughout a bunch of different places. And what this refactor involved in part was making sure that a provider identifier was attached to every single trigger. So all the native drip triggers would have a provider ID of drip. And then any other triggers that correspond to an outside provider, like say triggering based on making a purchase in Gumroad, Mm -hmm. then a trigger like that would have Gumroad as the provider ID specified. So there's a lot of data mutation that needed to happen, like getting old style triggers into a new format. Mm-hmm. And I debated, uh, there was basically two paths I could go. I could go, you know, path number one is try to sweep through and rewrite all the data in all the different places where triggers are specified to get them in the format that I need them. And then somewhere in there, figure out how to deploy the code so that we don't end up, you know, with old code pointing at newly formatted data. <laughs> yeah. Or what ultimately what I landed on was basically writing a transformation layer. So hmm. anytime we pull trigger data out of the database, run it through this transformer, and then utilize it like in memory, utilize the new format. And then when it's persisted, it saves back using the new format. So hmm. nice. basically guarantees that like everything's translated on the fly into the new format. And what was nice is like I could then put that in one class. I could write tests for every single type of trigger that I know is changing format. And... Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have to, I didn't feel the need to go all the places where we're touching that, testing that in, you know, all those different classes. I could just test it at the transformation layer and then make mm. sure that I'm using that transformation layer in the four different places where we have automation triggers. Nice. And yeah, so I think that's like, I'm, I'm still trying to make myself feel really confident this is going to really work. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like tests are passing, but sure. it's, it's one of those things. So we're like deploying and staging and we're trying to like simulate events. I mean, just doing manual QA on it just to be like, super confident nice well it sounds architecturally sound yeah i think i think it is i think it was kind of clever nice. so, I mean, big refactoring is like i mean i guess i look at other real world examples of refactoring like trying to like move a road or build a bridge or something <laughs> like that and there's like <laughs> there's probably lessons to be learned about how to like do things in steps and i feel like we're often having to do those types of things now because when you have a code base this large right. and complex like yeah you've got your own infrastructure to deal with yeah you're doing maintenance on a on a yacht as it's moving as through the ocean. <laughs> exactly. It's got to stay watertight the whole time. Yep. <laughs> but feel free to make whatever changes you want as long as that's true. Right. <laughs> exactly. Huh. Yeah, I had I had a gratifying experience this week pulling out a policy object. 
-hmm. So when I added this ability to redirect based on a thing in your submission data, there was already some com some somewhat complicated log not complicated, but there was already some forks in our logic for how we redirect because one of the options from FormKeep is you can say include the submission data as parameters, URL parameters when you redirect. Because mm -hmm. some people want to yeah. hit like a webhook type thing. Sure. Um, although we have a separate webhook, but but that's an option. And so it's like if the form has a redirect option specified and they want the the thing the params in the URL do this. If there's nothing specified, go to the thing our default URL, but don't include the params. And there was just it was kind of jammed into the controller with like maybe redirect here, maybe redirect here, and a bunch mm -hmm. of options. And I was like, mm -hmm. I'm adding another one, and this is just getting worse. And so yep. I did at first just kind of cram it in there and got the test passing. And I was like, okay, now it's time for the fun part. And then right. I extracted a class, which is like I think it's called like a, a redirect policy. And it was like, it takes the form and it takes the submission and then it makes the decision. It's just like redirect policy.new form submission dot destination. Yep. And that's like, we always redirect to whatever that returns. Ah, feels so good to do that. Yeah, it was so nice. <laughs> and it was great because like it was, all that stuff was in the controller. So it's like, yes, this, I mean, this technically can live here, but it was it's getting long and ugly and there's a bunch of stuff hidden in private methods. Yep. And I had this nasty, like multiply nested conditional that I, I managed to like find some base cases for or something and just mm -hmm. kind of like, it, it kind of just kept collapsing down. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ah, oh, this is this is why I love programming. <laughs> this is when I love programming. Yeah. Someone released a book called Therapeutic Refactoring, right? Like, oh, man, I love that title. <laughs> I don't even need to yeah. read it. I'm, I, I already got the full enjoyment of that book right exactly. there. Exactly. Yep, you get the gist. Yeah. Hey, actually, one tangential question that just popped into my head mm -hmm. related to something that happened this week was we, we had a few different distinct issues around people flooding data into our form submission endpoints in Drip. Hmm. Or like one was a related to the hosted form version of our opt-in forms, and another was related to like our JavaScript API where people can make an identify call to say like this visitor has this email address. Mm -hmm. And there's a few different cases where people were accidentally flooding like a lot of data in through those endpoints. And you know, it's easy to rate limit our REST API because you're presumably looking for a response and you know, you get a 429 and you can retry uh -huh. and retry logic. But if it's like just a lot of customers or something runs awry and like you're getting a lot of data coming through a public web form it's not quite as easy to propagate back like you've been rate limited you know uh, so yeah like like someone makes an HD like actually through the web page they yeah, hit the form exactly. for example okay right what is your rate limit I mean you must have rate limiting logic on form keep right no to, to some no, oh, no. okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, it hasn't been an issue for us okay I, I feel like it, I mean it's something that you generally add once it becomes a problem right <laughs> yeah know? we haven't haven't hit that problem yet we okay. we have pulled a bunch of stuff out of the request response as you'd imagine like we queued yeah. a bunch of background jobs for additional work to be done we try to do just like a little bit in the response or sure, as part yeah, of the yeah. request um, yeah. but beyond that we haven't needed to rate limit people got it okay yeah. Well, if you ever do, the rack attack gem is pretty cool. Oh, it's from, uh, that's a great from name. Kickstarter. Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> it is rack middleware, so it's yep. you know, rack yep. attack. Yep. And it's from, I think it's from Kickstarter. And you basically, based on an incoming request, you can specify what you want to rate limit by. So you can do it by IP address. You can do it by, sure. you know... Um, something some in, in, in the data, in the request. Yeah, something yeah, you yeah. pull out of there. Like a lot, of, a lot of our stuff is based on account ID. So we pull the account ID out of the request uh, URL yep. and then... You know, and it, it uses Redis, so and it's in the middleware layer. So, 
we've seen some folks who are like you know sending 500 requests per second or something at well, a certain um <laughs> by accident these are not like legit requests no right? well it's usually some kind of tight loop in their code like they mm. they they wrote a bug and it's right. all of a sudden hammering us you know we, uh, we that's that's good to know that that's a, a good resource we used to deal with this a bunch when we were running uh hop toad which became airbreak mm-hmm. okay yeah which was uh exception reporting software it's like honey badger right um, and people would like have a thing that crashed and throw a, th- a thousand errors a minute at us. Yep. Uh, and so I remember that was constantly a challenge on that project is just like getting smashed by people. Yeah. So it's, I mean, we've had rate limiting on the rest API for a while, but, but this week we had someone who they built this loop in JavaScript. And I think it was like, y- you visit this page and after a certain amount of time, it's going to attempt to process an identify call and tag the person viewing the page, right? Mm-hmm. So they had this this thing built where it was like every five seconds, loop and check and see if some condition is true. And if it is, then send an identify call. But the problem is they didn't, they had like a set interval or something and they never canceled it. So mm. when the condition became true, this thing just repeatedly every five seconds sent an identify call mm-hmm. and it happened for, they were like doing a launch. So it happened from everyone viewing their webpage right. at that time. So they created like a great distributed denial, <laughs> denial service attack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was like, it was crazy. We were like looking in the logs or like, this is a bunch of different IP addresses and they're all different email addresses. Right. So it's not like someone like repeatedly hammering with the same request and it's distributed. So <laughs> it took a little while to figure out what it was. But then you realize it was all the same account id yeah right yeah that's the one thing we did realize it was isolated one account but all the other data was like different ips different email addresses different data huh that is the thing about being an api i guess is your your customers can accidentally kind of hose you right so in that case like we're we're putting some really granular rate limits in place where like like we can't have a reset window of one hour on on identify calls because you know say you accidentally slam a bunch of requests in and then you're unable to identify people on your website for the next hour like that's not acceptable so <laughs> yeah right so exactly you know, that's tricky figuring out like how to we're basically setting the limit as high as we can without you know causing instability in our system mm-hmm. cool awesome well uh it's it's about that time all right it's good talking to you yeah you too today's show was produced and edited by tomedy show obarski nice if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 234 thanks for listening 